Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. The Lord's given us a pretty day to come together to worship Him. And my name is Jacob Yarbrough. I serve as one of the elders here. And uh, this morning I'm going to be reading to you from the book of Haggai. Or Haggai. And uh, it'll be Haggai chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I invite you to follow along with me as as I read. So... Haggai 1, 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough, and he who earns earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, Because of my house which lies desolate, while you, each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Father, I I pray that for this morning. I just pray for a continued... Uh, just to, to continue unity in the church, and I thank you for this church. I just thank you for what you're doing here, how the how the church has just grown and evolved over the last six years, Lord. And I just pray that we would constantly put ourselves aside. And Lord, I pray for this morning, uh, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that has a burden on their shoulders, that they would give it to you. And Lord, as an outcome of this sermon in particular, Lord, I pray that we would examine our lives and we would see the direction you would have us to go, that we would earnestly seek your will and your mission in our life and also in this season of our life. And we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. We doing all right? Yeah? Okay. All right. So if you have your Bible, go to Haggai, Haggai chapter 1. Today we're going to try to get through verses 1 through 15, the entire first chapter. But as I was studying this passage, as I've been studying it for the last few months, 
Uh, Haggai is like a pebble of rock. We look at it as a pebble of rock, but it is a nugget of gold. What has God created you to do? What task lies before you? What is God leading you? What is God's mission for this season of your life? That is the question of the hour. Today we'll be in Haggai chapter 1, and today I want to talk to you about finding God's mission, or finding or listening to God's mission for your life. Uh, But before we get too far in, uh, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Baron Brashell. You all know me, I'm sure. Uh, Even if you're a first-time visitor, you probably visited our website, so you know who I am. Uh, But I'm Byron Brashell, the pastor here. I've been here for six years this month, so thank you for a good six years. And uh, this is the church I grew up in. I say that often, and I just want to say I, I love this church. I love my people, and thank you for being here today and for supporting what we're doing here at Calvary Bible Church. Uh, the mission of Calvary Bible Church is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. To kind of orient us this morning, kind of where we are in our series, this is our third week in the Minor Prophets. We spent two weeks going through the tiny little book called Obadiah. It is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament, and today we're beginning our first week in the book of Haggai. Now, we're going to spend probably three, maybe four weeks in the book of Haggai, and I just have to do a survey. Okay, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on Haggai before? Okay, all right, all right, like 2%. All right, so this is going to be new material, new ground for everybody here this morning. Um, if, If I could pluck a word out of the sky... To describe this book, it would be mission. This book, in one word, describes mission. Mission to given to a guy named Zerubbabel and a guy, high priest named Joshua in the nation of Israel. And what is that mission? It is to rebuild uh, the temple. Uh, this week, as I was just kind of unpacking this text and kind of talking about mission and kind of how do we find that? How do we listen to the will of God? How do we find the direction he has for us in life? It just really made me feel uh, fortunate that I am able to kind of walk in my calling. Some almost, goodness gracious, almost 20 years ago, right here at Calvary Bible Church, right up in the depot, I remember out in the parking lot feeling like the Lord was calling me into ministry. And I had zero idea where that would take me. I didn't know, I thought at the time, that I wanted to be a youth pastor for life, and then I got in my mid-twenties, and the lock-ins, like, about killed me. So I said, I got to get out of here. So anyways, I loved youth ministry. It was a great time, but those lock-ins about did me in. And, um, but I had no idea where the Lord would take me. I, but I knew my mission. My mission was that I wanted to be in full-time ministry. And then some six years ago, I came back to my home church right here at Calvary, and As I thought about the book of Haggai, my life itself is a reflection of this book and the principles that we find here in this small minor prophet. God has created you for a mission. As long as your lungs have breath, God wants you to serve him in some way. God has a task or a will for your life. So let me just ask you the question, what is your mission in life? What does God burden you to do? What is your calling? Where is he leading you? What goal or vision has he placed upon your mind that only he can do through you? Life isn't a straight path, but a meandering walk 
But like a good hike, God is trying to take you to some great destination, to some usefulness in the kingdom of God. But is that true, that God has a specific mission or goal or vision for what he wants you to do in life? Is that true? You know, we look at the scripture. What does the scripture show us itself? That we each today, if we have the spirit of God living inside of us, if we are a Christian, that we have what? A specific spiritual gift that we are to use inside the body of Christ. So that alone tells us that we are unique, that God has a particular vision or mission for our life. But then we also see in the scripture that we have... For lack of a better term, ecumenical calling of God. That each Christian on the face of the earth has a calling as well. That we are to be lights to the world. That we are meant to be salt of the earth. That we are his witnesses. That we are to make disciples. But a few of us, you know, it's really it's kind of, I, I don't know if I would use a word ironic. Um, I guess sad, I guess. I don't have a better word. I wish I had a better one. Um, But a lot of us never even stop to think about our life. A lot of us never stop to think about what God truly wants for us, how he truly wants us to serve him. You know, so many of us are just so busy with life that we fail to even take a moment to listen to what the Lord would have us to do. Some of us are so distracted by the world, by our job. If you're a parent of young children, then I know you're busy too, okay? Some of us are more concerned with the temporal than the eternal. Some of us feel like we are Waldo in that book, Where's Waldo? That we just kind of blend into the crowd, that there's nothing specifically for us to do. Some of us feel like we just can't. Some of us feel too young or too old. Let me just say that again. What does the Lord have for you to do? What is his mission? What is the job that he has placed upon your heart and your mind? God is not necessarily telling everybody in this room to go into full-time ministry and to sell your possessions and go move out into the Appalachian region and live off the land. If he tells you that, come talk to me after service. But the, the, the Lord has a mission for you even in this season of your life. Maybe you're young, maybe you're old, maybe you're like me and you're far too busy, okay? What specific goal or mission does he have in this season of your life? What is your mission in life? The question we're answering is this. What are some principles? What can we find and fulfill God's mission? How can we find and fulfill God's mission for our life? This is the question at hand that we see in the book of Haggai. So if you have your Bible, go to Haggai chapter 1. Um, my, my goal for our time in the Minor Prophets is reflected in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we would see the Old Testament as an example to us so that we avoid their mistakes. So what I want to do this morning is I want to exegete the passage, which means take out of the passage, and then I want to help us kind of apply the overall principles to our life as a whole. So the book of Haggai, in one word, is the word mission. If you have the notes on Atop of the note sheet, there is that blank. The, the Haggai is described in one word called mission. Obadiah is pride. This one is this. And then what is the mission at hand? What does it talk about? The mission at hand is found in verse 1 of Haggai. Before we go into that too much, allow me to just kind of introduce this book. Haggai is, is not one prophetic oracle. It's actually four. If you notice in your text, there's probably four different sections, four different oracles, four different prophecies 
You have Haggai 1, 1 through 15, 2, 1 through 9, 2, 10 through 19, and then 2, 20 through 23. But what's unique about this particular book is that each of those oracles, each of those prophecies have a time stamp. If you notice up here, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. So each of those have a specific time stamp, like the emails that you have. It has a date and a time and all that stuff, so you can go back and look at it. But what's interesting about this particular book is that we can go back and actually determine the exact day that this oracle, that this prophecy was written. Haggai is the tenth in the order of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's the first of three that occur after the first return. And what's interesting, too, is that this book fits within the context of the book of Ezra. If you haven't read the book of Ezra recently, I would encourage you to do so as we go through the book of Haggai. Because you go to Ezra chapter 2 through 6, that that is kind of the narrative historical context of the book of Haggai. So Ezra 2 through 6 and Haggai kind of fit like a hand in glove. And what I see in this particular book, it talks about mission or talks about the purpose that Zerubbabel has for God in his in the land of Israel. Notice with me what we're going to do this morning is there are there are seven principles found in the book of Haggai, seven principles on finding and fulfilling our mission before God. And what I'm going to do this morning as we unpack verses 1 through 15, I'm going to unpack some of the background information as well. So notice here in the second year of Darius the king. Now who is that? We'll talk about that here in just a moment. On the first Day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. Now, again, notice here, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. What I see there is verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, that God is speaking his inerrant, inspired word through the unique personality of Haggai. And what do we know about Haggai? This guy right here who wrote this book, it's, it's Haggai. It's, not ha- it's like I, when I was a kid, Haggai, I heard a thousand different uh, pr- pronunciations for that, and my Hebrew scholar in the room, if it's not Haggai, please tell me, I'll fix that next week. Um, it is the, is, the, is the word Haggai, his name means my festivals or my holidays, I don't know why, maybe I can go look that up for me. Uh, he's only mentioned in a couple different places, in the, all of the Bible, this guy named, me here, named Haggai, obviously he's mentioned here, and he's also mentioned in Ezra 2 through 6, that obviously that would make sense. So then notice you have the timestamp. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. When we combine ancient Babylonian and Persian calendars, so we can tell that Haggai 1-1 was written 2,543 years ago. Haggai 1-1 was written on Saturday, August 29th, 520 B.C. Who is this guy named Darius? Darius the king, it kind of gives a timestamp for the book itself, but Darius is the king over what? The Mede and Persian Empire. If you remember the story in the story in Daniel, Darius the king is the king over the Mede and Persians. It is one of the four ancient empires of the ancient world. You have Babylon, and the Medes and Persians, and then who was next? The Greeks and then the Romans. Darius the king came to power, the Medes and Persians came to power by overthrowing the Babylonian kingdom at the end of Daniel chapter 5 and early in chapter 6. Darius the king himself is uh, called in ancient text Darius the Great. He's very warlike. 
He is concerned about expanding his empire. Uh, but Darius has a little bit of impulsiveness. Sometimes he lets people around him get the better of him. Why do I say that? He is the king that threw Daniel into the lion's den. If you remember that story, Darius the king. Also, uh, if you notice in your text, uh, Darius the king is first. So, go oh, keep going. Sorry, guys. I'm kind of scrambled this morning. To Zerubbabel, the Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Kohath, Zadak, the high priest, saying. So we see it occurs in Darius the king, 520 B.C., but who is it written to? Number one, it's written to Zerubbabel. Who is that? If you were to read uh, Ezra chapter 2, you would see that Zerubbabel, obviously here, is the governor of Judah, but he's also the grandson of the last king of Judah. So he is kind of the heir apparent. He is the heir to the throne if there were going to be a king over Israel underneath Darius the Great or Darius the king of Medes and Persians. So number one, the audience is Zerubbabel. His name means seed of Babylon, quite literally. So we could say that Zerubbabel was probably in the king's service, and that's how he got that name. Also, we see the second piece. Joshua is the second uh, piece of audience here. Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying. What's interesting here is we know that Joshua is at least 20 years old or more based on Ezra. Only those people that were 20 years old or older could work on the temple. So we see that as the author. And then notice the occasion. Why was this book written? I want you to look at that and see if you see what I see. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the people in Judah say, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. If you notice, we'll continue on in verse 5 of chapter 1. Now therefore says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much but harvested little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Verse 7, thus says the Lord Go up to the mountain, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it. So what is the occasion? Why is God speaking through Haggai to the nation of Israel? What does he want them to do? He wants them to rebuild the temple. So that Haggai, in a word, is mission. The mission is to rebuild the temple. I don't know if you picked up on it, but in verse 2 through 4, I, I, I sense a little bit of sarcasm. I don't mean that time has not come. What does he say? That you're more concerned for your houses, for your panels, than you are for my house itself. Thus says the Lord, these people say the time has not come, even time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So the mission is to rebuild the temple. It kind of is inferred in verses 2 through 4, but it's explicit in verse 7 and 8. And we would say that, Haggai, this book in Ezra chapter 2 through 6 begins the second temple period. Okay. Let's take a time out. What happened to the temple? You tracking with me? So if you know your Old Testament history, then you know there was a temple there before, and then all of a sudden they're rebuilding the temple. What happened? If you remember the temple. So to kind of put it all in a nutshell, to help you think through the Old Testament in a chronological framework, you have 2,000 is Abraham, 1,500 is Moses, 1,000 is David, 
500 is the return of Zerubbabel from Babylon. And then you have zero is Jesus. So 2,000, 1,500, and then zero. And if you remember the story, what happens with the temple? Who originally desires to rebuild it? It is King David, or build it originally. So David desires to rebuild or to build the temple. And what happens because of David's bloodshed? God says, no, you're not going to build it. First Corinthians chapter 22, but I'm going to let your son Solomon then build it. So then Solomon takes up the task to build the first temple, which is called Solomon's temple. And Solomon builds it in what? Complete opulence. The cedars of Lebanon, the finest materials, the workers. And as the rich guy in Jurassic Park says, we spared no expense. It was very expensive. Solomon did the most opulent job he could with the temple. And then after the temple is finished, what do they put inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant? Well, fast forward 400 years. The Old Testament from really 2 Samuel on through the end of 2 Chronicles, a lot of the conflict has to do with their view of the temple and their reverence for God. So then we fast forward. 400 years later, in 586 B.C., what happens? So Solomon builds the temple in complete opulence, and then somebody named what? Nebuchadnezzar comes, besieges the city of Jerusalem. In 586, he besieges it for 18 months. Then he conquers the city of Jerusalem, takes all of the fine gold, all of the elements out of the temple, takes it to Babylon, and then the temple is still standing there, kind of ramshackled. And then 11 years later, the Chaldeans, history says, the Chaldeans come and they wipe it off the face of the earth. So when Zerubbabel shows up, he is the first wave of three to return from Babylonian captivity. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar took kind of the cream of the crop when he conquered Jerusalem back to Babylon. Remember that? So then Daniel, that's why Daniel is writing from Babylon and the Medes and Persians and all that kind of stuff. So then the first return is under Darius the king, and it is led by Zerubbabel, and then God gives Zerubbabel a mission which is to rebuild the temple but what I see in this book in particular is that there are seven I came up with seven different principles in the book of Haggai to understand and discern the mission of God notice what he does there are three principles in our passage here this morning three of the seven to accomplish God's will number one is to listen for the mission to listen for the mission notice and then notice in your text verse 1 and 2 and 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies desolate? What we see here is that God gives Zerubbabel a mission. Principle number one is that we must listen to God's will. We must listen, listen for what God would have us to do. They had to listen to Haggai as Haggai shared with Zerubbabel and his companion Joshua to rebuild the temple. I think um, one of the greatest enemies, one of the greatest obstacles that we have as Christians to really fulfill the will of God is just the ability to listen. 
I think so, so much we are so busy with all of the distractions of the world, our phones, emails, stress, all of the things going on at home. I mean, if you just notice, if you walk in your own house, it's, a, it's crazy how many beeps you get every time you walk in, right? You've got microwave, you've got the oven going off, you've got your phone, you've got your kids spilling their milk all over the floor. It sounds like my house, okay? We are so busy with life that we struggle to even be able to listen to what God's will even is for our life. Let me just ask you the question, do you believe that God has a will for you? Do you believe, or do you believe that your day is past, or that your day is yet to come? I propose to you today that God has a will, a mission for you right now in the season of your life. His word proves it. The spiritual gift that he's given to you proves that he has a unique purpose and mission for your life. The scripture as a whole tells us as well that we have a, a ecumenical, as I said earlier, missions. But the question is, is this, how do we listen I mean, you have the nation of Israel, you have, you have Haggai coming to Zerubbabel, probably standing at the city, of, city gates, telling them to rebuild the temple. Today, we really don't have prophets. We don't have people speaking God's word to us in verbal form in that regard. But how do we listen today? I would say this, that we have it better off than they did in that time to hear what God has for us. How can we determine God's will or God's mission for our life? How does God speak with us today? Well, number one, he speaks to us in his word. Number two, he speaks to us in others. Number three, he speaks to us in circumstances. And number four, he speaks to us in his word. If you're trying to discern the will of God for your life, then the first question you should ask is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? The Bible, in a sense, is our boundaries, our barriers, our guardrails. You know, if you think that God is telling you to go shoot somebody, okay, he's not. Thou shalt not kill. Please don't think that the Lord is telling you to do that. The word of God is our boundary. Number two, the question is, if you're trying to discern what the will of God is, what his mission is for you, number two, you should, what are the people around you saying? The Lord speaks to us through his people. Would you guys agree with that? How many of you have ever had somebody come up to you in church and just say kind of the perfect thing? Uh, this morning, I was in the kitchen of the office, and somebody just said, Hey, Byron, I just want to let you know I, I really appreciate you. That's all I needed to hear. <laughs> okay. So I was back in my mind, I was like, Thank you. God speaks to us not only through his word, but also through his people. You know, one of the things that you would, we would be wise to do is put up a board of advisors around us. What does it say? That there is safety in a multitude of advisors. That we would put people in our lives around us that we can bounce ideas off of. People like your wife or your spouse. People like that you trust at work. Your, your dad, your mother, your brothers, your sisters. Whatever it is. And that you can have and bounce ideas off of their brains. Number three, God speaks to us in circumstances. You know, if you're pushing for the will of God, you feel like God has given you a particular mission in mind, a particular burden, a particular calling, but every time you go through that door, it shuts in your face again and again and again and again and again. We might take a hint. Okay, maybe the Lord doesn't want to go with that. But then number four, God speaks to us through his spirit. What's interesting is I've noticed 
catch this part. What I notice in the Christian life is that usually the Spirit of God prompts us for a mission and then confirms that mission. He prompts us with a particular burden, a particular idea, a particular calling. And then what we do is we then bounce off people, see the circumstances align, and then we, you know, we pray about it. And then typically on the back end, if the Lord is leading you in a direction, there is a sense of peace that comes. Um, my, my mentor here at Calvary, I asked him, you know, I said, man, how can you determine the will of God? And he basically went through this process. And then he says, Byron, kind of the last thing I look for is... Do I have a peace about the decision I'm about to make? So what is God calling you to do? What is the mission that he has for you today? Um, oftentimes in life, I think the biggest obstacle we have is the first one. It's just the ability to quiet the noise in our life and just to hear what the Lord would have us to do. Also, I think God answers our prayers on a continual basis, but often we are so busy that we just don't even notice. There's a story of the parable of a drowning preacher. We'll pick on a preacher this morning. A storm descends on a small town, and the downpour soon turns into a flood. As the waters rise, the local preacher kneels in prayer on the church porch, surrounded by water. One of the town folk come up the street in a canoe. And he says, better get in, preacher. The waters are rising fast. And the preacher says, no, I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still the waters rise. Now the preacher is on the balcony, wringing his hands in supplication, when another guy zips by on a motorboat. Come on, preacher. We need to get you out of here. The levee's going to break any minute. Once again, the preacher's unmoved. I shall remain. The Lord will see me through. After a while, the levee breaks, the flood rushes in over the church until only the steeple remains above the water. The preacher is up there clinging to the cross of the steeple where the helicopter descends out of the clouds and a state trooper calls down to him through a megaphone saying, Grab the ladder, preacher. This is your last chance. Once again, the preacher insists the Lord will deliver him and predictably he drowns. A pious man, the preacher goes to heaven after a while, he gets an interview with God and asks the Almighty, Lord, I had unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from that flood? God shakes his head at him and says, what do you want from me? What did you expect? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. That's us, friends. You know, we look for some calling from God. We look for a mission. We look for his burden. We look for the direction he would have us to go. And I think that the Lord constantly confirms his will to us, but often we are just like this guy. We either have a picture of what deliverance looks like that's not what God's answer to prayer is, or that we're just so busy and so blind that we fail to see it. So to accomplish God's mission, principle number one is to listen for the will of God, and then principle number two is to reprioritize your life. To reprioritize your life. Now, where do I get this from? If you notice in verse 6 of your text, this is what it says. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there is not enough to satisfy. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into purse with holes. What is he saying to them? What is he saying really in verses verses 4 through 6, and 6 in particular, is that you have your priorities in all the wrong places, that I've given you Zerubbabel, 
Joshua and the people of Israel. The mission, the goal to rebuild the temple. And as of right now, the people of Israel have all of the wrong priorities. They're more concerned about their homes. So what is the Lord doing in return? Verse 6. What is he saying? The reason you don't have enough, the reason you don't make enough, the reason you don't have enough wine, the reason you don't have enough food is that you're not prioritizing me above all else. Friends, listen. If you're trying to follow the will of God and you are on a particular path and there's just and you feel like just nothing is going right, that there's just closed doors after closed doors, that there is not enough supply to meet your mission, then you might want to reassess what you're doing. Because what I see here in verses 4 through 6 is that the Lord is not rewarding them in their behavior. He's actually punishing them, in a sense, to turn their life around and to actually understand what the Lord would have them to do. The way we can tell if God is blessing something is blessing, the blessing of the Lord. One commentator says this, this list of disasters in verse 6 is not random. Long before the destruction of the temple and the exile The Lord threatened some of these very judgments for covenantal disobedience. The curse section in Deuteronomy threatens drought and famine, lack of wine, poverty, and want. So what? when the Lord gives them a mission, what does he want them to do? He wants them to put down what they're doing and reprioritize their life because he's trying to catch their attention. He's trying to get them to see what they are doing. One of the best ways to figure out if you are living in the will of God and the mission of God is the fruit in your life. What areas of our life do we need to reorganize in order to truly follow the Lord? You know, I was up last night just thinking about the sermon. I, the Lord prompted my brain to wake up at about 4.30. I don't normally wake up that early, okay? I don't like that early. I'm not an early, early bird. I'm a night owl. And I just started praying over this text, and I just started thinking about all of the things that we should reprioritize in our life in order to accomplish the will of God. I think the number one thing that we should reprioritize in life is just how we spend our time. Just how we spend our time. Um, If you want to know how you waste your time... I would imagine just go on your cell phone, okay? It'll tell you exactly all of the ways that you waste your time. You know, entertainment, social, it's there, man. It's, it's like super duper duper convicting every time I look at my phone. All the time I waste. One of the things that we can reprioritize in our life to really accomplish God's will is just how we spend our day, our calendar. Number two, our money. You know, it's hard to go and to go to seminary if we're broke and we have a mountain of debt to go. It's very, it makes it very difficult. We should reprioritize our the way we spend time with our family, not just our time ourselves, but how we spend our relationships. Um, we should reprioritize the way we view sin. What areas of your life need to be reprioritized to fulfill God's mission for your life? So to accomplish God's mission, mission, listen for God's mission, reprioritize your life. And then number three is to look for God's supply. To look for God's supply. And where, where, where do I get that from? Verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Wake up. Listen. You're more concerned about erecting your houses than the house of God. Go up to the mountains. Bring wood and rebuild the temple. That is awesome. 
But God, God doesn't just come down from heaven and clobber them for their failures, for, oh, you haven't been concerned about me and my temple. He, but what does he do? He says, consider your ways. Here is how I have provided and supplied you to fulfill the mission I have given you. Go up to the mountains, bring the wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes the little when you bring it to your home. I blow it away. Why? Because the Lord of hosts, literally the word of hosts is used 14 times in this text. At 38 verses, is used 14 times. Host means armies or power. The Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own home. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, on all the labor of your hands. What is he trying to get them to do? He's implementing all of these consequences to the land to get them to wake up to what he wants them to do. Friends, listen. Um, If there is a particular area of your life that is a mess, whether work or whether family or your personal life, then I would... The first thing I would ask myself, based on this scripture, is, is my life, is that area of my life aligned with what God wants me to do? Am I fulfilling God's plan and will for this season of life? We should, number one, we should listen for God's will. We should reprioritize our life. And then number three, we should look for the supply of God. How is God supplying his mission, go up to the mountains and bring wood to build the temple. What they say is, uh, God's will done God's way never lacks what? God's supply. That if you follow him, if you trust him, if you walk in his will and mission, that he will supply for your needs. But is that true? Let me just ask you the question. How many of you have ever trusted the Lord with an idea and you, you took a risk and it may have looked scary in the beginning, but the Lord showed up and supplied. Friends, I um, there's not enough time in my life to tell you all of the rocks, all of the ways that God has supplied. Um, there are moments as the pastor of this church that we've seen it within a 24-hour period, okay? And the staff will tell you it was an amazing answer to prayer that we have seen, that the Lord supplied, that we trusted the Lord for his mission, we reprioritized, and then the Lord showed up. But the most vivid memory that I have of this particular regard is some 13 years ago. 13 years ago, Laura and I had a mission that God laid on our heart. He prompted us, he gave us a leading by the circumstances others his word, his spirit, everything lined up. All the lights were green. The Lord gave us a mission to go to seminary and to go into full-time ministry. I remember that like it was yesterday. And the, the day, like the day after Lord, Laurel graduated with her bachelor's degree, we left. I mean, I was out of here. I was going to Dallas, Texas. And I remember just, I mean, it, to, to some of us, it might seem irresponsible. Maybe I was just desperate. But I remember... When we were leaving Huntsville, heading for Dallas, all we had was a place to stay. That was it. We had one month of expenses in the bank, no debt. We spent all our money trying to pay off Laurel's bachelor's degree for her undergrad. We were able to pay that off. And then we had one month of expenses. We had a place to live, and we were driving to Dallas, Texas, where we knew no one. And that was it. It was scary. 
but the Lord supplied for our needs. We listened to the mission. We reprioritized our life. We got rid of our life here at Huntsville, Alabama. We packed up our stuff. We went to Dallas, Texas, and we showed up with one month in the bank. Well, within the first month of being there on campus, Laurel got a full-time job at Dallas Theological Seminary, which gave me half-off tuition, which is a good thing because my THM degree was about $75,000. Okay. So the Lord automatically within the first month answered. He supplied for our needs. He provided Laurel a full-time job. Uh, I called her in seminary my sugar, sugar mama. That's what I called her. Um, but then, you know, we still had a problem, right? I still had $37,500 to pay for. So, and I was bound and determined not to have to, not to go into debt to pay that off. So I was bound and determined to work three or four or five or six jobs, go to school, get through that degree. So I remember the first year, man, we were starving to death. I mean, it's like ramen noodles and beans. As Dave Ramsey says, beans and rice, rice and beans. That was our life. And then I remember after the first year, somebody came up to me and said, Byron, I, I, I just want to let you know I, I want to pay for the other half. You know, that was an example of this. You know, I look back on my life, and it is the epitome of the book of Haggai. That the Lord has called you for a reason. He has something for you to do in his kingdom. Whether it's different than it used to be, maybe you're limited by things, but the Lord has a will for you. And the first question I have is, will you listen? Will you listen to the circumstances, others in your life, the word of God, the spirit of God? Will you, just, will you listen? Number two, will you reprioritize your life? Will you change the way you live in order to follow him fully? And then number three, then look for how God will provide. That's what I see in the book of Haggai chapter 1. And then notice how the story in the end of chapter 1 ends. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They, they trusted God and the words of Haggai the prophet, and as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. They knew they were, he wasn't with them in the beginning because of all the things they were deprived with. Verse 14, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judea, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. It took them, what, 23 days to hear the commission of the Lord, to look for his supplies, and to reprioritize their life. Um, my, my application for you this morning is simple. This is just a summary of what we talked about, mission, rebuild the temple. Listen for the mission, reprioritize your life, and look for God's supply. But really, this is the question of the hour. So what? You know, how, how am I responding to God today? How can I apply this? You know, I, I, I'm just asking for a favor this week. That's all I'm asking. Um, the, 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 the thing I'm asking is, what is God calling you to do? What is God asking you? I believe that the Spirit of God prompts us in a particular way to trust Him 
And then we need to cross all those boxes, determine if it's the will of God, other circumstances, the word of God. Pray about it, listen to the Spirit, and then see if there is a peace on the back end. Maybe today there is somebody, something that you've been holding back that you just know that you're supposed to do, but you're afraid. Reprioritize your life. Look for God's supply. Maybe there's somebody in your family that needs to hear the gospel, but you're afraid that it'll mess up your relationship. Share the gospel. The question is this, what is the Lord prompting you to do? What is his mission for you in the season of life? If you do not know Christ, uh, then I would urge you to come to him and believe in him as Lord and Savior of your life. If you do not have a personal relationship with God, if you don't know where you stand with God, if you feel like you're a good person and you're going to get to heaven because of it, then you won't. Why, what does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you want to know more about how to come to Christ, how to believe in him, how to be born again, and how to be a Christian, uh, come and see me after the service today. What does the scripture say? That if you confess your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart, that you shall be saved. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning and just the book of Haggai. And just how you gave Zerubbabel and Joshua, the people of Israel, a mission to rebuild the temple. Lord, I, I pray for this morning, uh, Lord, that we would learn from the past, that we would uh, take notes of this book and what it means to be on mission for you. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your inspired word and how it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Lord, I lift up those this morning. I pray that we would respond to you, that we would go before you in our, relate, in our quiet time, in our relationship with you, to try to hear from your spirit and your word uh, what you would have us to do in this season of life. No matter our age, you have something for us. You have a calling, you have a mission. Lord, we lift this up to you. Thank you for this church. I just thank you for the love and the care of these people. And we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.